This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The Sheepdog, the Sentinel, protecting the flock while it sleeps, keeping the wolves at bay. The Sheepdog never questions why, it simply does its job with honor and vigilance. The Sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24-7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. The men and women of our armed forces our nurses and firefighters, our paramedics, laboratory scientists, and of course, our police officers. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. Now we are honored to serve them. Introducing Sheepdog Java. We're more than just a coffee company. Sure, our specialty blends will help folks like you create the finest cup of coffee you've tasted. But what's even more special is that we're partnering with American Valor Foundation through the Chris Kyle Memorial Benefit to help fund training and professional development for first responders nationwide. We know training budgets are tight. Sheepdog Java will reinvest in your first responders, helping fund and create training courses so they can operate at the highest level in order to keep you, your family, and your community safe. So join the pack. Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. We've uh, had a couple of weeks off here. We were doing some other things and um, we just wanted to get back after this. And one of the topics we thought would be make for an interesting episode is the incident that occurred on January 6th, not the gathering, not the protest, not the riots or not these so-called insurrection. Specifically what we want to talk about is the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, the actual shooting incident itself, which has to get, you know, investigated and it has to be investigated thoroughly. I want to take you through this from the perspective of an investigator, like we usually do, and give you a little background on police-involved shootings, why they occur sometimes, and how, how they are looked at, how they are reviewed and investigated. And then I, what I want to do is go through some of the things that happened here and explain to you 
why this was so different, why the actual investigation was different. Um, and it was, it was kind of bizarre how this, how this played out as compared to any other police shooting. Maybe you might say, well, this was different. It was, but it's still the pulling of a trigger on another human being. So there has to be certain things that occur, um, for that to be justified. So what I'd like to do is walk through it and, um, talk a little bit about that day and what led up to it and how it occurred, how it unfolded, and really ultimately how it was looked at and reviewed. So Ashley Babbitt was one of the people that went to Washington, D.C. that day who, um, I don't know, I'm going to say wanted to get her voice heard or, or wanted to protest or was, was angry about the outcome of an election or the uh, confirming of the ballots. There was a very large group of people outside in the area on the streets of Washington in and around the Capitol. I don't actually know the, the, the number, there's a few hundred thousand people or a hundred thousand people, whatever it may be, they were spread out all over and they went there that day from all over. It was not a local thing. They came from all over, not just the country, but people actually came from all over the world and they felt the need to be heard. And there's been much much hullabaloo made about this because people say, oh, it was ridiculous claims and this and that. And other people say, well, the election was a fraud and there was acts of fraud and things weren't done and the states aren't holding up their end. And that's why they all end up there, right? So they're unhappy. And I'm not going to get into the who's right or who's wrong about that. Because in, in this particular case with the shooting, especially when you're looking just at the shooting, that shit doesn't matter. What matters is there was a lot of people there that day. Now, as we've seen so much lately. And at the time of this recording right now, there's another case going on where um, a Gabby Petito is, is, has been found murdered, ruled a homicide out West, and her boyfriend is still nowhere to be found. They're looking for him. The reason I bring that up is media, media hype, media spin, media take, whatever you want to call it. The way the media tells us things, reports things to us, is gotten really so far out of control that um, we don't really know who to believe anymore. I personally find myself turning on BBC once in a while, looking over in the UK and listen, listening to them report on the US news. <clears throat> I actually think we get a better take from them than we do from our own news outlets. And it's, uh, that's kind of sad. Let's go back to January 6th. So we have all these people outside and they're screaming and they're chanting and they're upset. <clears throat> I had the good fortune to speak to somebody who went. And um, I asked this person, I said, hey, what was it like down there? I mean, it's, it looked pretty crazy on TV. He said, you know, it was really a great day up until the end when, when people decided to go up the steps and try to get into the building, into the actual Capitol building itself. Because there were street vendors out there and food trucks and this and that. And people were just all like-minded people cheering for whatever it is they, they wanted to cheer for. But he goes, it kind of got ruined at the end of the day when these people started acting like idiots. Now, the media is just, will not stop calling this an insurrection. And they are going up and down left and right and, and, and saying, you know, this was the greatest attack on the U S government since the civil war and everything else. 
And never in my life do I remember anyways, there being so much gaslighting and hype and raw emotion and spun up crap in the media to get people to lose their minds as there is right now. And when you look at news outlets and how they are reporting things, if you believed everything they said, you say, you say to yourself, oh my God, the world's coming to an end. Um, or you, or you, depending on what news network you believe is one political party is great. And the other one is the devil. It was an event that got out of control. There was some activity and behavior there that was absolutely illegal. And the people that are, that were there and did this, you know, some of them, not all of them, some of them, well, they're going to have to be held accountable. And what they did was, was not, certainly not legal and certainly not something that should have been should have been carried out. There were some very poor decisions made and there was a lot of emotion running wild and some people did some really stupid things. However, the turn to throw the word insurrection around, if you watched the videos leading up to this, you would say, wow, you know, insurrection, you don't really hear that word very often, an insurrection. An insurrection is an organized attempt to overthrow a government. Now you could say, well, that's what happened. They were trying to overthrow the government. Actually, I disagree. I am not in any way defending their behavior or condoning their actions. Don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody to think that. However, it certainly wasn't, it was more like they were pissed off and they were acting out like fools. Maybe some of them, a lot of them, but not anywhere near a majority of the people that were in DC. There was this very small number compared to the crowd that actually went in this building. The media would have you believe it was like storming the beaches of Normandy. And an insurrection would be, um, an, you know, an organized attempt to overthrow the government. I don't really think they, they were just pissed off at the outcome and they wanted to be heard and they did some really dumb things. And it spun up into a point where some really horrible things happened. And one of the things is the death of this young woman, Ashley Babbitt. And I want to talk about how that occurred. Most of you who are listening to this, I'm sure, have watched some of the video somewhere along the line on, on some news outlet of that day. As an investigator, and from the viewpoint of, let's say, you were, you were assigned to investigate this case, some of the things you'd want to look at is, let me see the videos and what led up to this. And if you did and you watched some of these videos, one of the things you're going to see is there is pretty much irrefutable evidence, video evidence, that these people were let in. Uh, they made it sound like, you know, they took battering rams and took all the doors down and overwhelmed, uh, had an overwhelming armed force and, you know, over, overtook the Capitol Police. There's a lot of video footage that shows or appears to show that the doors were being opened and they were being somewhat permitted inside. There was even conversations with some of these people and audio recordings of some of the Capitol uh, police officers saying, you know, just behave, you can come in, you know, do this and you just got to behave and don't do this, don't do anything, whatever, stupid. And there was even a few where there was photos being taken with some of the Capitol police officers. So as an investigator, I look at that and I go, okay, well, there were some people, because there was other video where they were breaking things. They broke some windows and they did some damage. Once they got inside, 
there was a group of people that that went into people's offices. Somebody stole a laptop and a few other things. These are all. This is all criminal activity. There's no defending that. There's no defending that idiotic behavior. But uh, when you think about <laughs> some of the videos, these people were carrying American flags and actually were walking within the rope lines. It almost looked in some of the videos, like some of these people anyways, not all of them, were on a tour. And they turned around and then they left. And there was others that did not behave that way. And we get to Ashley Babbitt and some of the people that were immediately surrounding her when she was caught on video. They were at a doorway, which led into where the chambers were and several politicians, the politicians were located and they were having their, their meeting and somebody did break a window. Uh, you can see from the video, it didn't appear to be her, but somebody did break the window. Now, the root of this, this, this episode, the, the reason I'm doing it is the shooting. She was shot and killed. She's a young woman who was an Air Force veteran. She's from California, I think, San Diego, I believe. And she's in there for whatever reason. And, and again, I'm not defending her going in that building. I can tell you if I was down there, which I never would have been, but if I was, I never would have went in that building. And I'm, when I say I never would have been down there, I don't do anything political. I don't go to any of these political things, no matter what party. So I don't want you to think I'm on one side or the other. I, I believe very, very wholeheartedly that people have a right to protest and people have the right to be heard and make their feelings known and, you know, peaceful assembly and all that. So when I, when I criticize some of the people for breaking things and doing building damage, I mean it. They, they committed crimes and they need to pay for it. But here's the thing, folks. A gunshot went off. The gunshot was fired by a Capitol Police officer. A woman was struck and died from that injury she sustained from the gunshot. And that has to be investigated. Where I have a problem with this entire thing as an investigator is I look at who investigated it. Now you say, well, the Capitol Police were involved in the shooting, so they're not going to investigate it. Well, that's a good thing because they don't really investigate shootings for a living. So who do they bring in? They bring in the Department of Justice. I'm going to assume the FBI was involved when they say DOJ, but the FBI doesn't really do that all that much either. They're not a big shooting reconstruction organization. They're not a big, they don't do a lot of this. They don't patrol. They don't have a lot of area responsibility in local areas. They enforce federal law. Now, this was on federal property, so it would be federal law. So you would make the assumption that they were there, and I'm assuming they were. The other thing is um, what you have here is the DOJ and you have D.C. Metropolitan Police. But who exactly was doing this as far as, um, you know, the, from these individual agencies is, is kind of interesting because from, from DC Metro, we have the internal affairs unit. Okay. They don't investigate shootings. They investigate administrative wrongdoing for the most part. They're not out there doing the, the shooting. Usually you have your homicide people or you have a shooting response team that comes out. And the FBI does have a shooting response team. Whether they were involved or not, I do not know. And it kind of comes back to one of the other things. 
nobody, nobody talked about any of the details of the case. I mean, they sealed it. Where else have you heard in this country of a police officer involved shooting where name was never given out? Results of investigations, ongoing clips. It's so funny because they say no justice, no peace all the time, and they want everything done in a fishbowl. They want transparency immediately, unless it's the federal government. Then you don't get told shit, right? It just shuts the door. They shut it off. Boop, everybody goes radio silent. I don't have a problem with that. It's just that that doesn't happen all the other time. And the feds are usually one of the ones of the groups of people asking for all the information and giving, giving statements. But now they're, they're in charge of this investigation. So what do they have? They have DC Metro come in. They have the Bureau come in and they have somebody from DOJ. Uh, but it's the Division of Civil Rights and, and whatnot. And that's, that to me is something a bit concerning. So we have a statement was the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia's Public Corruption and Civil Rights Section and the Civil Rights Decision with the Metropolitan Police Department's Internal Affairs Division conducted a thorough investigation of Miss Babbitt's shooting. They don't do this shit for a living, folks. You're talking about civil rights violations. You're not talking about criminal murder investigations. This is a homicide. Now, it could, you, the question was whether it was a justified homicide or not. So right off the bat, but see, what they just did was they named that. That's a lot of fancy words that just went on there. Oh, the corruption and civil rights section and blah, 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 blah. And you know what that was? You're standing in the batter box and they just threw a fastball right by you. Because you said, wow, oh, wow, the attorney general's office and all these people from there. And wow, they came in and did this. All the people they just named don't do this for a living. They are not homicide investigators. None of them. Guaranteed. They conducted a thorough investigation of Ms. Babbitt's shooting. Officials examined video footage posted on social media, statements from the officer involved and other officers and witnesses to the events, physical evidence from the scene of the shooting, and the results of an autopsy. Based on that investigation, officials determined that there is in, now listen to this wording, there is insufficient evidence to support criminal prosecution. Officials from Internal Affairs Division informed a representative of Ms. Babbitt's family as to the determination. Why is D.C. Metro, who has no jurisdiction in a federal building, being brought in? Well, one, because D.C. Metro actually does do homicide investigations, although it's not their internal affairs. They do it. They had to lend some credibility, and they had to get an outside agency in there to lend a little bit of objectivity. And you notice they didn't bring the homicide guys in or the guys that investigate all their shootings in. So that is interesting to me. So as an investigator, I look at it and I say, yeah, that to me is not cool. Something is a little, we're throwing fastballs here and people are swinging and missing or they're just not paying attention, which is, uh, you know, something that happens quite a bit actually. So, Listen to this. The focus of the criminal investigation was to determine, to determine whether federal prosecutors could prove that the officer violated any federal laws, concentrating on the possible application of 18 U.S. Code 242, a federal, a federal criminal rights statute. I'm sorry. A, yeah, criminal civil rights statute. Civil, civil, civil rights. All right. 
Do you notice you didn't hear of any other U.S. codes in there? Because I'm going to tell you about another one here in a few minutes. So they want to. We want to know if there was a civil rights violation. Well, do you want to know whether it was justifiable or not? I mean, not just a civil rights violation, but could it have been a homicide? So in order to establish a violation of the statute, prosecutors must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the officer acted willfully to deprive Ms. Babbitt of a right protected by the Constitution or other law, here the Fourth Amendment, right, not to be subjected to an unreasonable seizure. Prosecutors would have to prove not only that the officer used force that was constitutionally unreasonable, but the officer did so willfully, which the Supreme Court has interpreted to mean that the officer acted with a bad purpose to disregard the law. As this requirement has been interpreted by the courts, evidence that an officer acted out of fear, mistake, panic, misperception, negligence, or even poor judgment cannot establish the high level of intent required under Section 242. Well, I look at that and I say, well, you set the bar high. 242, a civil rights violation. And those little things up there, that's a lot of wording. It's good wording. It's neat. I like it. It's legal. It sounds badass. And it gives them the out to say, yeah, we don't have enough. Okay. And I understand that. But that's the statute they gave. And everybody just goes like this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, it was an insurrection and you know, that's what happens in insurrections. People get shot and, and whatnot. And it kind of went away. The whole thing kind of went away. And some of you, if you, if you have not listened to this podcast before, let me just give you background. The reason I am talking about this is one of the things we do, I do, and another gentleman that works with me, Jim Molinaro, we do this a lot. We do a lot of police shootings. We do them from the civil side. We help prosecute or defend. Um, we do shootings. We teach it all over the United States and we teach agencies all over the world actually in shooting reconstruction. So when I talk about this, I come, I come at it with a little bit of experience. Um, and I'm going to tell you the things that we look at and look for. And when I read this, I see different things than maybe some of you do. Like a civil rights violation is the benchmark that you're looking at and then you don't mention anything else. I'm not saying they didn't, but they're not, they're not talking about it. They're not bringing it up. So I'm going to bring it up because that's what we would do in an objective, fair investigation. Now, you might be saying to yourself, he sounds like he's going to light the guy up here who shot her a little bit. Well, you would be correct because I am going to discuss his statements. Now, I'm not going to discuss his statements to the investigating people here because we don't know what they are. We don't know what any of that is because the feds don't tell anybody anything ever which sometimes can be a very good thing. Other times it makes them look foolish. And this is one of the reasons why some of these federal agencies are constantly in the media getting their asses kicked in. But it's very carefully crafted that the people you heard involved are not people that do this for a living, not very savvy at this. And well, let's get some lawyers involved and because they don't investigate cases, but they'll, they'll let, tend you to, let you believe they do. And then Let's give a great, well-crafted statement and people will just go, uh-huh, okay, let's move on, which is what happened. And then we'll spin it to a political thing. You know, these are all pro-Trump people, QAnon, lunatics, and I get it. Listen, their tech, tactics and techniques are working. So we, we can sit there and shake our head and chuckle, but it's working. So there's, there's some logic that's being put into what's going on here. But what's getting lost in the fluff and the gaslighting and the nonsense is what really happened here. So the police officer 
I believe he's a 53-year-old man by the name of Michael Leroy Bird. He's got many years in the Capitol Police. And we wouldn't know anything, and I guarantee you I would not be doing this episode right now if he had not gone on television after he was cleared and done an interview with Lester Holt. So that's really where we get a little bit of information from the man himself. Now, he's been there a long time, and I guarantee, like in any courtroom in the world, the judge knows his bailiffs, he knows his sheriff's deputies, he knows his people, and they become familiar with each other. They're friends. They see each other every day. They're, you know, the, your, your courtroom security people are looking out. Well, same thing in Congress. This guy's been there for 20 some odd years and they all know him. And I'm going to get into how well they spoke on his behalf, not knowing shit themselves, but they spoke on his behalf and it was all very positive and endearing and, 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 and uh, encouraging things they all said about him. And I understand that because they're with him every day. And what they did for the layperson, and when I say lay person, in, in, in scenes of gunfire and, and potential violence and, and people getting hurt and shot and injured and dying, they are lay people. They don't do this. They don't do this for a living. They're not expected to know anything about it. But what they see is this heroic Capitol Police officer saved their lives from impending death and destruction. And that sounded crazy. But I'm going to give you a statement from a politician from Pennsylvania who was, I, I had to watch it three times. I was so blown away by her overdramatic nonsense and how much it actually can affect an investigation and, in, and affect a potential jury. So in most areas, when a police involved in a shooting, there is a very thorough review, right? Usually what ends up happening in a lot of places is they're presented to a grand jury. Grand jury is the public. It's the people. The grand jury is selected. They listen to the facts. They listen to the presentation of, of, the, of the prosecutor or the attorneys from, in this case, would have been a U.S. attorney's office, and, and they make a decision. But they, they are given the statutes to uh, consider, and they're, and they're read the definition of the law to consider in, in deciding whether or not this should move forward to a trial or charges could be made. So a, a, a no bill in a grand jury means they're not going to indict. A true bill means they're, they're going to indict and, you know, the prosecutors could move forward with charges and, and an official trial. So in this case, there was no grand jury. Forget a no bill. It never went there. They just made, waved a magic wand and said, you know, um, he's good. We're good to go. Yep, we looked at it. Yeah, there's no civil rights violation. We're good to go. And, um, oh, and by the way, these are the people we had look at it. What they never tell you is these people that looked at it, apparently, um, from the descriptions they gave, don't do this for a living. So let's have people do this for the first time and make a decision. That's great. Michael Byrd went on Lester Holt. And, you know, it was kind of the thing to pique my interest because we hadn't heard from him. We didn't even know his name. I mean, his name was finally admitted later, and it was one of those kind of, uh, you know, for weeks people were saying, "Well, who did it? Who's who's the 
Who's the shooter? Why, why haven't we heard his name? I mean, what's going on? Why, why are they, is he in trouble? Or are they, oh, I get it. They're protecting him, right? Because he's one of theirs. He's, he's in there. And it's, I, I, I have to say this and I have to laugh at it because this is one of those deals where um, they will be the quickest people, some of these politicians, to rip law enforcement nationwide. They're the ones up there beating their chest saying, we need police reform. We need to defund and abolish police. Think about that. Asking for police reform is one thing. My question, well, I'll follow up on that in a minute. But saying we got to defund and abolish the police, these are supposed to be leaders. What kind of idiotic comment is that? I'm going to defund them. I have a message for those people. You defund the police, you get what you're getting right now. They're not arresting people. They're not proactive. The drugs are running rampant. Fentanyl overdoses are at an all-time high. And this country is a bit of a shit show. Because you beat them up. And if you're going to keep kicking them in the ass, they're just going to look at you and go, hey, man, you're on your own. Well, here's the deal. You abolish the police. You're the first people that are going to go because you're the ones that don't have the balls to stand up. And if you get lawlessness in this country, you people, the ones that are screaming about defunding and abolishing the police, you better run for the hills. Because somebody said something to me a while ago, wait till the people that don't want to be involved have to get involved because that's when it's going to get ugly. So this is dangerous talk abolishing police. This is not something that can ever, ever happen. This is a nation of law and order. So let's go back and talk about police reform. Whenever I hear that, I ask people the question, okay, man, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. You want police reform? I'm interested. What is it? What is it you want? What is it that needs to happen to have police reform? You know, something that's going to appeal to everybody. What, what is it? What is, what is the picture of success of police reform? And they look at you almost like you're an idiot. Like, well, you don't know. And I say, just explain it to me. I mean, I, I want to know what it is. The answer is they don't know. They just don't like things now. They don't even really, some of them know what they don't like. They'll throw things around like massive amounts of police brutality, systemic racism in law enforcement. Every expert that you hear talk about this, say those statistics are inaccurate and quite the opposite. And now what you're getting them is that they're standing off. Look at cities like Chicago. Every Monday morning, you're hearing somebody on the news going, and the totals for the weekend in Chicago are, and they'll tell you, 56 shot, nine dead, three children. And they, they give it like it's a freaking weather report. And they just move on to the next bit of news. We've been so desensitized to the, the maniacal violence that it just becomes part of our life now and they want reform. So all of these things affect investigative ability. And when we look at this particular case, the politicians who are always screaming about it are the first ones in this case to stand up for him. But they wouldn't know what the right thing to do is there that day as far as a use of force policy if it hit him in the face. But they're still quick to, uh, to speak about it. Now, there's a uh, congresswoman, Madeline Dean, out of Pennsylvania, Democrat, okay? She gave a statement talking about Michael Byrd. She got emotional 
She literally got him. It looked like she was standing in her kitchen and she got emotional. Quote, Ashley Babbitt was feet away after breaking through security gate after security gate after security gate. Well, how many did you know she broke through? If you were, were you watching her? Were you with her? Or are you just saying stupid shit to make it sound better? Because unless you were right next to her, you're just, you're just kind of just popping off. Then she says, Michael Byrd should be credited with saving our lives. The lives of other members of leadership. I love when they call themselves a leadership. We're, we're leaders. Other members of leadership. She says, this wasn't just any day. <laughs> Listen to this. These rioters were there to kill everyone in the line of succession, including the vice president, the speaker, and others. Okay. That, wow, man, that's a, uh, that's a powerful statement. I don't know what she's basing it on other than maybe shitting in her pants when people were outside screaming. I don't know. I don't know what she was basing that on, whether somebody told her that they're, oh, they're going to come kill everybody. We'll get into what weapons were there and this armed insurrection thing. And the reason I'm going through this is because somebody's got to investigate the killing of Ashley Babbitt. And all the peripheral noise, all the ancillary shit that went on around them makes doing this very, very difficult. So, Lieutenant Michael Leroy Bird, he is the commander of the House Chamber Section. He was the subject of a 2019 story. Um, he's a U.S. Capitol Police lieutenant. He forgot his gun. They're claiming he left his service weapon in a bathroom on a Monday night, and the unattended gun was discovered later some by another Capitol Police officer. So, Lieutenant Bird goes in to use the toilet. Now, I have been a police officer, and I have gone into the bathroom to use the facilities, and yes, you have to undo your pants, to, and when you do that, you undo your belt, and your pistol is usually on a holster on your belt, and you usually pretty conscious of it. But to clean yourself up, pull your pants up, cinch your belt, zip up your fly and walk out of the thing and forget the three pound gun. That's a boo-boo. That's a no-no. That's a big mistake. And apparently he's in a, a public bathroom, I think. And if I, if I, if I stand corrected, if it wasn't a public bathroom, but the interesting thing is, the unattended gun was later discovered by another Capitol police officer. Um, and that may have been the next day, that day, or maybe several days later. So we don't really know. They're, they're never really come giving us disclosure on how long his gun was sitting loaded in a, in a bathroom. But one thing that, that struck me as odd about this is the gun was discovered later by another Capitol police officer. Now, I'm going to be honest with you folks. If I was in a bathroom in a, in, in, at work, and a pistol was laying there. One of the things I would not do is go running to my supervisor and saying, somebody left their gun in here. I would try to find whose it is and give it back to them. And then I would break their balls forever. And that was the same thing they would do to me. They wouldn't rat anybody out. It would be very quiet. Hey, bud, you, you, what are you doing? Here, put this back and, and don't ever let it happen again. And, you know, you get your, you get your chops broken. And that's the truth. That's really what probably would happen. The fact that another Capitol Police officer found it, and this became 
made public, he may not be the most popular guy there. That's just an assumption on my part. I look at that as odd. So Mike Bird left his Glock 22 in a bathroom in the Capitol Visitor Center Complex, they say. He told other officers he will, quote, be treated differently because he was a lieutenant. That's apparently one of his statements. Um, so they're, they're looking at, this is the guy that later, later shoots her. And I want to get into this shooting aspect of this. Um, he is standing outside this doorway by the chamber and he is guarding a door. And, um, he lets a, a round go. He fires one shot. Now, if you've seen the video from one of the cameras, taking video, you can see the gun emerge from the left side of the screen and it's pointing. The gun then cants slightly to the left, moves a little forward, and the gun is discharged. What you have to look at is where the gun was discharged. There's a group of people on the other side of this wooden door with glass in it, and somebody had broken the glass. And it appears as though Ashley Babbitt was going to step up on a chair or a table or something and try to climb through that window, which is a dumb move. I don't know where you think you were going. And I don't know at what point you thought this was a good idea. Your emotions took over and you did something stupid and ultimately it cost you your life. But the problem is compounded by the fact that the person with the gun on the other side made a very stupid decision. And I'm going to say this very, very bluntly. Michael Bird fired into a crowd. He fired directly into a crowd of people. And as the camera that I just spoke about pans to the right to see this crowd and see Ashley Babbitt get hit and wounded and they, they help her down to the floor, standing right with them is a Capitol Police SWAT officer in full gear carrying a rifle. So not only did the firing into the crowd, he fired at his own people. The guy's right there. There's no getting around it. There's no denying it. The video is plain as day. And to give him the benefit of the doubt as an investigator, which I would say, you know, okay, there'd be a lot of questions and answers. What do you see? What did you do? What did you hear? What was going on? Well, he didn't say anything to the public, which was very smart. They quote, he, he, was, he was told to be quiet, and he did. Very, very smart move. Um, the interviews went on. I don't know. I'm going to be the first to admit. I don't know exactly who interviewed him, and could have been a very qualified person, could have maybe not been. I don't really know. Um, but he, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he was not heard from until the statement was made <clears throat> by the U.S. Attorney's Office that he was clear. And it kind of went to what I just did, which I'm going to come back to again in a minute here. So, um, down the road, however, he gives this public interview. I would not, like I said earlier, I would not have even thought about doing this podcast if I didn't hear his interview. And I'm going to tell you why. So Lester Holt starts to speak to him and he gives his, uh, he does a good job interviewing, actually. I mean, he does a really good job. He, he asks him, you know, how long have you been on the job? And, you know, you're this and you're that and blah, 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 blah. 
and Lieutenant Bird answers these questions honestly. And he's, you could tell he's a little unner, he's a little nervous. He's in front of a camera and a lights and they had a whole uh, film crew set up there and they were doing their thing. And, um, you answer the questions as honest as you can. And he seemed to have done it. And quite honestly, he answered them very honestly to the point where it could potentially hurt him because there is going to be a civil suit from this. It's already been filed, I believe. Um, and there's all of this is going to come out in the civil suit, but I'm just going to name a few things here that as an investigator would set me back in my chair. So Lester Holt asked a number of questions, but here's a couple of the things that were very uh, shocking. At one point, he and Lester Holt, again, to his credit, he let him in. He gave him the, he, he, he allowed him to, to talk about it. He says, what kind of threats did you hear? Oh, well, I heard there was bombs going off and people losing fingers and hands and you know, officers were down all over the place. Well, none of that shit was true. Apparently, as this thing played out, I mean, I mean, Jesus, it was, it was on TV all day that day, and nobody heard any explosions or anything like this. They started talking about how many weapons were there, and uh, one of the interesting things was the some of the politicians talking about an armed insurrection and this, that, and the other thing. And 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 Bird in his interview with the television started saying we we were hearing things over the radios. Well, how many times do you hear radio chatter and police played by the news? We haven't heard any of these. Nobody has made any of this public. Um, there was a couple politicians that got a lot of heat for saying, I don't really know that this was as violent as it appeared. Um, and saying it was not an armed insurrection. And the media just went off on them saying, oh, no, no, how could you say that? Blah, 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 blah. They said the weapons used. Uh, things were used as weapons like a baseball bat, a hockey stick, because yeah, people bring hockey sticks, I guess, to the Capitol. Rebar, a flagpole. Maybe they had these things. Maybe they found them. I don't know. I didn't see it in any of the videos, but I did see people with flagpoles and, and, and waving flags. Whether they stabbed people with the poles or beat them with it, that very well might be the case. I didn't really see it. CNN, who is you know the source of all things true and factual, you know, they report rioters use knives, stolen police shields, stun guns, fire extinguishers, and more. I did see a fire extinguisher go off. Hand-to-hand um, -hand combat, leaving dozens of officers to the hospital with bone fractures and concussions. I don't really know how many there were. Um, they get to the firearms. This is, <laughs> this is what CNN says, and, and, and they call it facts first. So listen to this. Facts first, according to CNN. While it's impossible to know precisely how many firearms were brought to the Capitol on January 6th. It's already clear that at least some of the pe people present were carrying guns that day. How do you say that? Think about the wording. It's already clear that at least some. It's, a, it's clear that uh, some, maybe none, but some. We don't really know, but we're going to say it because what the hell, we're CNN. And the police officer who testified at the committee on Tuesday made clear rioters also used numerous other objects as weapons. So basically in the building, I don't know that there was any guns. Now, when it gets to the firearms, it says so far with the investigation still ongoing, three individuals have been charged for allegedly bringing a gun onto Capitol grounds. At least two other individuals have also been charged with gun crimes in relation to the events that day. Um, and 
that is something that, you know, is, is an issue. Now, who are they, right? So you look at the one guy, Mark Ibrahim, according to CNN, who at the time is an off-duty DEA agent. He's been charged with bringing a service weapon on Capitol grounds during the insurrection. Insurrection. They're just throwing it out there like it's, that word just flows during the insurrection, as well as lying to the FBI about why he was there. Um, so we have an off-duty federal agent. They locked him up. Maybe he was acting like a maniac. I don't know. But, you know, it, it, it's not like, oh, so-and-so, the gangbanger. This is an off-duty federal agent. Another guy um, is accused of possessing a pistol and a rifle without a registration or any firearm in Washington, D.C., which were recovered by the FBI a day after the insurrection. So that may have had nothing to do with this. That means they went to maybe went to his house and found it, or maybe it was in his car and may have had nothing to do with any of this. I'm not saying it was right that he had it. If it didn't have a license or a permit, that's he's going to get jammed up. But let's not let's not say he was pointing guns at Michael Byrd and everybody and all the senators. Another person is accused of parking a truck filled with 11 homemade bombs. Now that, folks, is a problem. If that's true, you got a major problem. But where did he park it? Not in the building. And I'm not I'm not defending this guy. Don't get me wrong. Wherever he was, he needs to get taken down and put away. Um, they also said uh, the Oath Keepers, a paramilitary group, li- likely stored weapons, likely stored weapons at a hotel in Arlington. It's part of their plan to have an armed rapid response force during the sur- insurrection. So in every paragraph in this comment about firearms, the media the people we're supposed to be able to trust is talking, calling an insurrection over and over and over. And they gave really nothing here other than the guy with the bomb as something that would just make my hair stand up on end. Well, we locked up an off-duty federal agent. Really? Because last I checked, he's allowed to have a gun. And that's the kind of stuff that just sways the public, sways the public. And when you hear people talk about this, they're using the term insurrection. They, insurrection, they bypassed riot. They went right to insurrection. It's interesting, isn't it? How, as an investigator, you're supposed to look at these things objectively and say, well, okay, it's really not an insurrection. The feds finally came out and said it really wasn't an insurrection. But it was much later, after everybody had ran with it. And they had like 600 people or 600 plus people they've criminally charged with different things. Most of which was failing to leave the public grounds, dis- disrupting a public meeting and things like that. Nobody was in there charged with attempted murder or or anything like that. There was some assault charges, yes. And granted, that should have been, absolutely. There were some people in there doing some pretty dumbass things, but not everybody. So the media blew this, a lot of this way out of proportion. But from the investigative standpoint of this shooting, this is one of the things they didn't take the time. I don't want to say they didn't blow it out of proportion. They didn't give it the scrutiny that a credible media should give. Lester Holt asked questions, but I will say this, Lester Holt didn't follow up and hammer him, which he should have done because he would have hammered a politician had they done something wrong. So we have the politicians giving statements that he saved everybody. He was the greatest thing in the world that day. Now, let's go into some of the things that Michael Byrd said in his interview with with Lester Holt. Now, I don't have the official statements. They've not been made public of what he said to the federal officers or whoever it was that interviewed him. I don't know if he was interviewed by any actual police officers that investigate homicides, but he was interviewed 
and they cleared him. The U.S. attorneys came out and said, you're clear. Remember some of the U.S. attorneys were appointed by politicians. Politicians were the people in the building. So if you don't think there was some contextual bias and confirmation bias, you need to uncork your head from your ass because this is rampant with this. So Michael uh, Bird said a few th- interesting things to Lester Holt. One of the things he says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you his quote, and you can watch this on a video. Google Lester Holt interview with Michael Byrd, and you'll see the whole thing. Quote, I believe I showed the utmost courage on January 6th. Just let that marinate in your head for a second. In 30 years, over 30 years now of doing these types of cases, I have never heard a law enforcement person involved in a shooting say anything like that to anybody, ever. That is the statement of an insecure individual who is trying to persuade you that what he did was right. And the people that do that are themselves questioning what they did, is my experience, what I have found when they start uttering things like that. But I've never heard anybody say that. He gets into, Lester Holt asks him about preparation for this day. He says, we spent a week doing threat analysis and planning. Okay. Every single one of you needs to go back to a remedial course on threat assessment and planning because apparently you didn't see the half a million people coming. I don't know how that, I don't know how you missed that. So he says, there was no specific intel requiring more manpower. Again, this is not an official statement to the, to the law enforcement. This is a statement to the media. Okay, there was no specific intel requiring more manpower. What is your manpower? How much manpower do you need to protect the Capitol building? Normally not much, I'd imagine. You have whatever you need, canine units. I'm sure there's a bomb unit on a standby. I know you have tactical people there because you shot at one of them. Um, so he says it's a routine event. His words, <laughs> it's a routine event. We only had one third of manpower due to COVID in the demonstration. Routine event. So all these people show up because they're pissed about the p- possibility of fraudulent voting sites, polling sites and voting sites. And they, sh- they show up out in mass, massive amounts of people filling the streets and the park and everything else. And this is a routine event. I would, I would venture to say this is probably anything but routine for the Capitol Police. This is basically a tourist spot for most people who are there with their families well-behaved. So this event is not really routine. He says where they were, where Ashley Babbitt and the other folks were, was a short steps from the chamber. I have no doubt. You can see that right from the, uh, from the video. He goes, America had the opportunity to watch it play out on TV. I never had that opportunity. Well, no, but you were there. And you made the decision. You've heard me say uh, this before. There's decisions. There's a cognitive process in a shooting, which I'm going to go over again. He said the radios, the radio chatter was there were multiple breaches and officers were down. I'm not disputing that. I'm not agreeing with it because I really don't know. I know the one officer that everybody said was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher originally and sprayed and this and that died of a stroke as, as far as the autopsy was concerned. And he was, it was very sad and um, I'm not making light of that at all. But what I am making a point of is the misinformation by the media and their willingness to run with the things that sensationalize the stories and the topics that they want to drive. He said officers had fingertips blown off, shots fired, 
all found out not to be true. So I don't know who was saying it on the radio or even if they did say it on the radio. He said their capital had been breached. He says, I had to rely on my training. Um, every, <laughs> every exercise we've ever done prepared me for that day. These are bold statements. And, and I'm going to tell you, part of what Michael Bird said that day was scripted. No doubt he was coached. Um, he says, 28 years on the job. The majority of that is in the house chambers. Okay. I'm not sure if sitting your time in the house chambers, you've experienced that much violence or that much, that many incidents where you had unruly public behavior. It's not like you're on the side of a, a city street or the side of an interstate highway with an unruly drunk or a drug dealer or a rapist or a murderer. You're not really facing that where you are if you spend all your time in the house chambers. You're dealing with politicians, which some people probably would describe as not almost not as as bad. But you're in there and they come to know you and you see the same people every day. And I say that not to make fun of him. I say that is a reason, there's a reason for this. That routine every day is is a peaceful job. There's if you're in the house chambers, there's really no outside in, in, in interference. They're not in there. So the day that they got close to being in there, how did you react? That's really what the question here is. How did you react to what you were facing? Did you panic? Were you nervous? And I, I understand why they threw up 18 U.S. Code. 242 because it specifically says oh if he panics or makes a mistake we can't hold him accountable under that statute but they threw that fastball by him so he says i could not see what was happening over the door all right this is where we get into the the moments where michael bird never ever ever should have given this interview he repeatedly told, told, and this is why I know he was coach. He repeatedly told Lesterold, I was following my policy. I knew I did my job. I followed my training. Okay, let's stop right there for a minute. Nowhere, I would guarantee nowhere in your training has there ever been a time where they told you to fire indiscriminately into a crowd of people. I've looked at use of force policies in consulting cases we've done. I've reviewed them from all over the country. I've signed my own for 27 years. Every year I had to sign it. We all have to sign them. We have to get trained in it. We review use of force policies, use of deadly force, and we sign that we understand them. Nowhere did it say you can fire indiscriminately into a crowd, crowd of people. And it gets worse. So just bear with me on that. I know... I did my job. I followed my training. And he says, I know that day I saved countless lives. Who are you convincing? Yourself? Do you need to say it out loud? Do you need to, do you need to say those words to convince yourself that that's what you did? That you saved countless lives? Because there is a justification. that If you believe, if you truly believe that they were coming in to kill you and you you fired in defense. I'm okay with that. But you're going to have to give me a little bit more about why you believed they were coming to kill you. Because there was people already in the chamber at some point, whether it was before or after that. People got in and nobody got killed. People sat in chairs, took some selfies, you know, walked around. Some one idiot walked around in a Viking hat with horns on his head. I mean, it was, 
It was an epic failure on the, on the security of this building. But nobody else died. Nobody came in to kill anybody else. If they did, I'm pretty sure they would have been armed with things other than flagpoles. So maybe you thought that at the time, and that's a fair assumption. You say, look, I didn't know, I, 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 but say that. But you say, I, I know I saved countless lives. Well, you took one and nobody else died in, 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 the, bill, in the part of the room that you were guarding. Now, even after they got in, nobody else died. So I'm not sure that you actually have a lot of ground to stand on by saying that. Now, this is where things... I sat with my, my, my jaw dropped. Lester Holt asked this question. What made you pull the trigger? His answer was, it was a last resort. I waited as long as I could. Their failure to comply with my commands required that I take the appropriate action. Now, some of you might say, okay, stop. It was the last resort. I waited as long as I could, which means you intended to, you, you thought about actually firing before this. I waited as long as I could before I did it. That goes a long way to his decision-making and telling me what he was thinking, if this is a true statement. So here's the deal. People do this, and there's three phases to this. There's a, there's a perception of a threat. I'm not saying Michael Byrd didn't see a threat. I actually think he did see a threat. What kind of threat? is up in the air. That's debatable. There was no weapons. He never saw a weapon. He admitted it, and he never saw a weapon. So to use deadly force, you have to, you have to really be in a position where you're going to protect yourself from death or serious physical bodily injury. And I'm not saying he didn't believe that if they got in, they were going to potentially try to injure somebody. Maybe he did. But then there's the decision that you are going to pull the trigger. And the third part of this decision-making process is you actually do it. You execute. You pull the trigger. So he went through that phase. It's important that I explain that because what comes next will blow your mind if, if the last resort thing didn't already blow your mind. Last resort. They failed to comply with my demands, my, my instructions. So I shot them is basically what it comes down to, right? Did you know, Lester Holt, did you know who you shot? He kind of rolls his eyes up in the air. He goes, I had no clue. I didn't even know it was a female until much, much later on. I only found out later that the individual, the subject had no weapon. But there was no way I would know that because I couldn't see her hands. Think about this. I found out later that the subject had no weapon, but there was no way I would know that at the time because I couldn't fully see her hands. So you fired into a crowd of people. You didn't know who you shot. You rolled your eyes and said, I wouldn't know. I couldn't even see her hands. So if you couldn't see her hands, you obviously couldn't have seen a threat for that moment. It's also interesting to note that there was at least four, maybe five other, and maybe more armed people with him, behind him, in that chamber. Some of whom had weapons drawn and were pointing at that door. So in the one show, in the one photo, he's not even in the front. He's coming up behind him with his gun in his hand. So when you have a case <clears throat> where an officer looks and tells you, I shot because they didn't listen to me. 
Well, you know what? That's okay. That's actually justifiable. If in not listening to you, it means they didn't put down the gun they were pointing at me, perhaps, or something of that nature. But to just arbitrarily say they failed to comply and I had no other choice. A lot of questions are going to be asked. Could you have waited? Could you have waited until they breached? Did you have enough firepower in there that if they did breach, you could handle the onslaught? Because, because they say, well, you know, he stopped it. He stopped it. Because somebody said that to me one time. Hey, what's the big deal? He stopped it. What did he stop? Them coming into the room? They got in the room anyways. So he didn't really stop it. So what did he stop? He stopped her heart. That's what he stopped. And as an investigator, I'm not sure she deserved to die for this. As a matter of fact, I have a really hard time as an objective investigator saying this woman got shot in a justifiable shooting. So when you make statements like, they didn't comply with my commands, so I did this as a last resort, I fired. It's not a last resort. Maybe it's the last one you could think of, but it's not the last resort. You could have done other things. Then to say, I don't even know who I shot. That means you're not aiming. You're aiming into a crowd indiscriminately. That's why I said before, indiscriminate firing into a crowd. When you actually admit that you have no idea who you shot, you just fired into a crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot do that. Everybody thinks it's cool to carry a gun. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. Oh, I wish I could get a carry permit. Always. Let me tell you something. Carrying a firearm in public in the United States comes with a tremendous amount of liability and responsibility. It is a pain in the ass. It is heavy. It is cumbersome. It's awkward. Holsters make it a lot easier, and some good designed holsters can make it easier. But it's not something that, that even a lot of cops like doing off-duty. It's more of a pain in the ass than anything else. And to pull that gun out and point it at somebody and then to fire at them is a big deal. It, it takes lives. It, it can kill people. And in this case, it did. And then to have the shooter come to you and say, I couldn't really see who I shot. Then why'd you shoot? If you couldn't see who you shot, then you couldn't see a threat. So that brings me to this point. We went through US, 18 U.S. Code 242. That's the one they mentioned. That's the only reason I'm saying that. There's another one called 18 U.S. Code 1112, and it's titled Manslaughter. Now, I'm a police officer. I, my whole career, I've been a police officer. I do a lot of work for police still. So for me to sit here and kind of go against the Capitol Police Officer in this is a big deal. I, I don't normally do this. But I'm fair, and I'm, I believe I'm objective. And I look at this, and I say, this, this, is, this was a shitty investigation. And this was a, this was, this, you put this to bed, is what you did, because you never even put it before a grand jury. So 18 U.S. Code 1112 manslaughter. There's two. There's an A and a B here. A, manslaughter is the unlawful killing of a human being without malice. It is of two kinds. Voluntary, which is upon a sudden quarrel or heat of passion, like a passion provocation type thing, or involuntary, in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony, or in the commission of an unlawful manner, or without due caution and circumspection of a lawful act, which might produce death. I'll read that again in a minute. Let's go to B. Within 
the special maritime and territorial jurisdiction. So that really doesn't even come into play. So let's go back because B is a second part of uh, manslaughter that is has to deal with maritime and territorial jurisdictions. A, involuntary manslaughter in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony. So is his act unlawful firing indiscriminately into a crowd? You decide. You decide that after what I just told you. Or in the commission of a, in an, in the commission in an unlawful manner, okay? Or, see, these are ors. So in the commission of an unlawful act, not amounting to a felony, or in the commission in an unlawful manner, or without due caution and circumspection of a lawful act, which might produce death. In this case, it did. There's a big argument that can be made he acted without due caution and circumspection of a lawful act. The lawful act would have been seeing your threat, neutralizing your threat. In his own words, folks, this is not my opinion. His own words here are, I couldn't see who I shot. I didn't know till later it was even a female. And as far as a weapon, I couldn't see because I couldn't see her hands. If I'm the investigator, I look at that and say, well, that might fit. U.S. Code, 18 U.S. Code 1112, involuntary manslaughter. Why this was not brought before a grand jury? That's a question I'm going to let you all answer for yourself. Politicians were involved, right? There was chatter and behind closed doors, but there was nothing in public. The media, who normally hound the shit out of everybody, they didn't find out who this guy was. Maybe they didn't give a shit who it was. Maybe because it was a, a politically fueled thing against one party or the other that some of them just didn't, didn't really care. Ashley Babbitt died because somebody fired into a crowd and didn't know who they were shooting at. Think about that. So when you go back to the civil rights part, the panic thing may come into play, but you go to this 1112 manslaughter involuntary without due caution and circumspension of a lawful act which might produce death, that, well, you're getting into that area and a lawyers and lawyer, teams of lawyers would argue this back and forth. <clears throat> the reason I brought this up today is because a lot of it just went away. It just went away. And it went away because the media allowed it to go away. And they allow certain things to go away. You talk about insurrections. They want to talk about insurrections. You ever notice they didn't, they didn't call... They didn't even want to call Portland or Seattle chop zones with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damages and fires. They didn't even really want to call them riots. They call them mostly peaceful protests. You had an actual media personality standing there describing on camera live. Uh, most of them are peaceful. It's mostly peaceful protests. But behind them, there's a building fully engulfed in flames that somebody lit on fire. So, you know, arson's not peaceful. Okay. And these were riots. My point is, the media never even referred to them as riots. Some, some media outlets never referred to them as riots. They were, they were mostly peaceful protests, you know, for racial injustice and everything else. But in this particular case, this just goes away. They never even ask. And by the way, it was an insurrection in their eyes, which they've later come out and say no. So they don't even correct themselves. But my thing is on this, Lester Holt never really did a follow-up. He's actually holding on to a pretty good story here. He doesn't know this guy anything. And if you're an objective reporter, Lester Holt, 
Maybe you should come back and do a follow-up and look at some of these codes and say, hey, wait a minute, what are we doing? How much, how much political pressure was placed on these investigators? First of all, how, how weak was the decision by the DOJ to put civil rights people on it instead of homicide investigators and have an IAB division instead of homicide investigators from DC Metro who are out at shootings probably every night? Decisions were made. So as I always say here on Under the Yellow Tape, my goal here is not to change your mind. I'm just going to give you this case and some facts of this case, of facts of what we know. There's other things we don't. I'll be the first to admit that. And let you make up your own mind and say to yourself, huh, well, I'm okay with it. She died. You know, screw her. She did this. Or you look at it and say, you know, I'm not sure that lady should have died. And I'm not sure that guy should have just gotten a free pass. Your choice. Think about it. I'm glad you listened. Thank you for listening in. And um, we will... uh, pick up again soon on another topic because the media has given us so much material to work with these days. And uh, we'll come up with something here probably in the next week or two. We may hit something uh, up on this missing girl and uh, Mr. Brian Laurie, who's on apparently on the run. And I'll, I'll, let me preface it by this before we go. As of this date, and it is October 5th, they've convicted Brian La- La- Laundry in the media. He's convicted. He's a murderer. I've heard multiple TV personalities from CNN to MSNBC to Fox News call him a murderer. Here's the thing, folks. Objective investigations. We don't know what's going on as far as the investigations happening yet. But there has been no evidence put forth that Brian Laundrie has committed the act of murder. As a matter of fact, the warrant that is out for his arrest right now is for the misuse of a debit card. Think of that, and we'll pick that case up later, that he is pretty much convicted in the media already, but we know nothing about what it is and how difficult. We'll talk about how difficult that case would be to prosecute. We might even uh, bring on a criminal uh, prosecutor or a defense attorney to talk about that next time. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk soon.